Hey everybody, I'm Tyler, and this is the Early Days Podcast. I created this show as part of my work as an investor at Antler. I wanted to talk to the world's best founders and pick their brains on how they went from zero to one, building some of the most important companies in the world. Frederick, you're here. It's great to see you again, uh, and uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It's uh, it's an honor to be part of the Antler Antler Podcast uh, Early Days uh, crowd. It's a <laughs> it's a it's a nice uh, lineup you guys have. Huh? Yeah, and uh, I've been really excited to record this episode. We've actually known each other for a long time. We worked uh, in Zalora together. Uh, way back when you were in Indonesia and I was in Vietnam and uh, you've gone on to become an entrepreneur of yourself. So you are the founder and currently the CEO of Superside. So just to get us kicked off, um, how do you explain to people what Superside is? I mean, it depends on uh, how much energy uh, I have and uh, to whom <laughs> I'm, I'm explaining, really. Um, if I'm explaining to someone at the, at the wedding or something and I'm trying to get um the conversation uh over with and you know you get back to to drinking and and what you what you do at, at weddings I, I say that we're a design agency um and um, you know we, we are kind of that but in a way we're also sort of the anti-design agency we're trying to reimagine the model it's fully distributed fully remote we have 750 people in 750 countries um it's uh, for the people working in Superside uh, a flexible way to um, to work remotely. You can scale up and down how much you you want, and so we're kind of in the middle there between a marketplace and a traditional agency, and trying to reimagine really how work gets done on the internet, starting yeah. with um, design. Um, so that's uh, yeah, that's the sh- that's the short answer and. Um, sometimes, you know, especially if there's, uh, there's investors or something, you know, we go at great lengths and sort of detailing the model. Yeah. And, and how long have you been, how old is Superside? How long have you been building it? It's five or six years now? Well, uh, time uh, goes fast. I think we started or started immediately after kind of leaving Solora f- fall of 2015. And so... Now it's basically yeah. been seven years. Seven years. And it's been quite a quite a journey. So today what I really want to talk about is the early days, obviously, as per the name of the podcast, but really kind of diving into, you know, in 2015. Um, so I'd like to talk about the team, um, sort of how you brought together the first group of people that got, got off the ground, how you developed the idea, how you sort of tested and validate that with the market. Um and uh, I think specifically diving in, Superside, there's a lot of great lessons. Obviously, you and I worked together previously in a company that operated a marketplace. Uh, and Superside is, for all intents and purposes, a marketplace, but it has some really unique aspects to it. I think it's really fascinating to hear from you about how you got that off the ground. Like a marketplace has some very peculiar challenges in terms of like getting it started. And I love to dive into that. But let's start. At the beginning, let's talk about the team. Um, how, how did you bring together the, first of all, what did the original group that launched Superside look like and how did you bring everybody together? 
Yeah, I mean, super random, but uh, me and um, and my co-founder started out and really brought together a group of people on the internet um, and really just a pretty diverse uh, group of people. Um, some people in in Oslo, um, one, uh, yeah, a few people just that we found on Upwork um, and Fiverr and all these marketplaces that started working um, with us on doing sort of fractional um, stuff here and there. And so we were kind of building, um, we were kind of building our company uh, on these platforms and uh, very vividly seeing kind of which problems they had. And at that time we were trying to build a freelancer marketplace, kind of like Upwork and, and Fiverr themselves, but um, yeah. with much higher quality and we really struggled to find talented people but we got good at it after a while and we're essentially running the company with uh, yeah a mix of these people on the internet students um, sort of doing side uh, hustles and it's generally really really hard to get anyone convinced to, to work with you in the start <laughs> and when you say we like in the very beginning was it just you testing out the idea or did you have co-founders did you have an original team yeah so me and uh, and a co-founder and then um we worked together and i guess um we sort of just divided and and conquered and and then um basically the first thing that we did was basically put up a website and you know all the promise uh, like crazy all this fantastic <laughs> things that we we could do and then you know we were like nobody's gonna find this website and nobody's gonna actually you know click buy and um and and book a call with us and you know sign up for our service but all of a sudden like out of nowhere you know people on the internet started you know um finding a website and, and buying it and then we had to scramble like crazy to actually deliver and and back then it was like we were trying to do this this marketplace with which was horizontal so we would offer multiple categories like design and creative and data entry web design and and really so like on any given day uh, we could get super diverse uh, orders and then me or my co-founder would sort of act as the project manager on all of these projects and just try to figure it out together with people that we hired on on upwork and and fiverr and we kind of kept doing that for for a while until it became completely <laughs> unsustainable <laughs> so the real service of the company was just you and your co-founder figuring it out on the back end manually yeah totally we had absolutely no tech we didn't have anyone that knew how to program um we were really trying to figure it out i remember you know just doing data entry myself together with the group of five six people on the internet for some company in the uk measuring the size of roofs to figure out uh, um, the whether they could sell them solar panels and so we were just looking at google maps and like manually measuring these roofs um you know with all these super random projects that um that i'm not sure and i'm not sure if it made sense to do them but we were just chasing chasing the money right and and trying to just get growth however we wanted and i think um many startups uh, fail because they don't uh, follow the money that uh, that religiously you know you just take a lot of time to 
think about your ID, polish your ID, make sure we were like, we would do anything literally to get uh, to get things <laughs> to grow. <laughs> so, so, so the MVP of SuperSide was essentially a website that offered, you know, various design and design adjacent services but you guys would get like all sorts of random requests and you would just like figure out a way to do it yeah we in addition to design we did uh, we did everything i mean we we didn't only do uh, design we were like the we were positioning ourselves as a as a business partner for all ad hoc okay so you started so off much more broad like actual like upwork super fiber. yeah super broad like upwork fiber style broad we we didn't offer you know engineering services or anything like that but pretty yeah. You know, pretty broad. I was like trying to build websites, which I don't know how to do, and you know, or at least try to act as like the project manager for for people that ordered websites. I mean, literally everything under the sun that that people typically did on the internet seven years um, seven years ago. And again, you know, in retrospect, it's really easy to um, to say that we should have focused on design because things only really took off when we decided to focus on on one thing, but. On the other hand, it's really hard to to say how fast we would have we would have learned. So um, I don't know. It's um, it's uh, yeah. It's interesting to look back at all of the uh, you know stupid things that you did. <laughs> so talk to me about. All right, so that was a, sort of the first version of the product. Like you guys just really quickly got it up and running, and like you said, followed the money. Whoa. How, how did you how did you set priorities like how did you decide what are we trying to actually do here like more broadly than just satisfy any request that comes in was there a particular framework or certain kpis that you were watching um in a broader sense to try to derive like wh what really is this company and where are we heading i mean i think we were total noobs um at this point and I'm sure there are lots of great, um, great frameworks and and things that you can can do. But um, I think for us, we were just really trying to prove that we could build something, and we kind of felt that once you have something, you can use that something as leverage to get to something bigger. It's like you know you go gambling, right? And you start with the uh, small deck of chips and you know you just start with something like reasonably safe to be able to double your chips and when you have more chips you can you know play play a bigger and more more risky game and so we were just looking to get some kind of business off the ground and and use that business towards um towards accelerating the mission i guess the only thing that that really was constant um from the get-go was this overarching um very strongly held belief that we had that online work would become one of the most important transitions of the 21st century yeah. um and that online work would really help create more equal opportunities in the world through giving really anyone anywhere access to sort of us level wages or much higher wages than in their local markets and so but uh but it's pretty broad, you know, it's, it's pretty far distance from that overarching abstract mission to the day-to-day -day of, you know, doing data entry or uh, helping people with PowerPoint polishing or, you know, we really started at um, at, at the, the bottom, 
at the bottom level you know at the, yeah. and maybe we should have started all the people build companies starting at a very high kind of at the, at the premium tier but we yeah we kind of worked our way up from from the the lowest hourly rate jobs that we could find and we did it ourselves and learned a lot along the way yeah and so it, it seems like <clears throat> i mean when you talk about how you guys got started like you seem very unattached from what the specific business was right and you were sort of following the money and kind of learning and figuring that out was was there a north star in place like you mentioned the the mission and you talked a little bit about you know believing that the internet was going to create this massive change in how opportunities are distributed was that like your north star was that sort of like what you wanted to build in from the beginning or did that develop over time yeah, so the mission was there from the beginning and we somehow wanted to be just be part of that, you know, and we didn't yeah. necessarily need to be the greatest, largest company in the world, but just throw ourselves into it and, you know, worst case, you get acquired by some other company in the space and you've learned a lot about the space and, you know, best case, you build a decent uh, company. So, like, it felt reasonably low risk to just dive into a space that we were excited about. Um, and the North Star in the beginning definitely was was revenue, and um, it has been I think ever ever since. It does really create the discipline in a business to, you know, actually, you know, make money. And yeah. um, and it's not like we've been super ruthless about it. And I'd say that our kind of um, our our thinking around it has has changed quite a bit, right? And I think we started out a little bit naive, chasing it too short term, uh, if that makes uh, any sense. And by that, I I, I kind of mean just like chasing chasing revenue with with not sufficient regard for the quality of the revenue. Yeah. And so over time, we've we've become. Um, We've completely changed from things like broad jump on on anything that can generate a cash flow to to a much more kind of quality approach where we take a narrow focus around what type of customers can we really uh, add significant value to, how can we you know develop our value proposition to them and really build something that is very very sticky and. But it's taken us a long time to to learn to be narrow focused. And I think we probably would have failed if we had started out too, too narrow. So in retrospect, it's always hard to draw any kind of generalization from these startup stories. It seems <laughs> to be <laughs> going all over the map. Yeah. I mean, in recording these episodes, I think that there are a few generalizations that I've been able to pull out in terms of like companies that became very successful. One of them is uh, sort of a lack of emotional connection to what you think the idea is and, and sort of this focus on uh, being very objective towards the market, right? So one of the things I see a lot is um, it's it's like founders often fail when they're paradigm of building a company is this is the way that I think the world should be and I'm going to make the world that way as opposed to like what you said is like I think the future is going to be distributed and I'm going to take a bet on that thesis 
But how I actually build a business around that has to be two-way communication with the market, right? Like I can't force the market to change the way that they behave unless I'm providing something that they really want. And, you know, you started off uh, very broad, but talk to me a little bit about what, what you guys learned. Like, so at what point in the company did you start to realize that like, hey, we should start to define what we don't do, right? Like we've done everything. We've chased the money across basically anything. I'm sure you probably had a lot of really hilarious requests on Superside when you were just like, <laughs> and maybe even today you still have hilarious requests that you say like, unfortunately we don't provide that service. At what stage did you start to say like, hey, we need to actually s focus, right? We need to define what we don't do and, and how did that end up becoming design specifically? So today you guys are very focused on design. Um, how did that evolution happen? Yeah, good question. And um, and what you said about this mental flexibility and um, that being a, a generalizable thing from, from entrepreneurs, it really resonates uh, with with me. Uh, I think that we've tried to build that in as a core core value and um, this whole truth seeking thing and being being very objective. But um, on this and 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 on this specific question of like when to be narrow, when to be when to be broad, it's just really, really hard. And it's um, it's very hard to be, or it's very easy to get dogmatic, right? Like you say about, you know, this is how I think the world should should look like. And, and this is kind of a, the coherent thesis of our company. It fits nicely on an investor presentation. It kind of feels co coherent if we do these things, but not yeah. those. And, and that's, I think not the right approach i don't think our approach was right either i mean our approach was basically to do everything and, and follow the money very aggressively and follow growth very aggressively up until the point where you know customers were like this service that you delivered to me is just crap you know you guys don't <laughs> you have no idea what to do uh we want our money back like you know making it up every time um <laughs> <laughs> and and so we didn't really want to it's not fun to let your customers down right so yeah you know if, if you get a couple of those you actually need to look hard on yourself like okay it fits maybe nicely into this whole thesis that we have but maybe we just need to like shut it down and rethink our our thesis and so gradually over time we we really kind of found um design to be the one thing that we did particularly well that we all felt quite passionately would be the next um big thing on the internet because it's not really bound by language to such an extent so really anyone in the world can 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 communicate uh, visually and um as opposed to you know legal where you need country specific yeah. um skills and so design really resonated and and then we sort of decided let's let's only do let's only do that and it just sort of all the pieces fell into place and everything suddenly became a lot easier you know developing our tech product which was then you know, previously we were trying to build to service a bunch of high highly heterogeneous product services categories and now we could only build it for for design our go-to-market became suddenly a lot easier because we now could communicate only to one or two buyer personas being 
the marketers and the creative operations, creative director type people. And so everything kind of clicked. And um, this was now kind of coming up to 2018 or something. So, you know, three years in. And this is where we really start to find product market fit. And so for us, it took more than, uh, really more than three years to, to find product market fit. Yeah. And had you... Had you capitalized the company like during those three years? Like, had you gone out and raised external capital with the non-design, like the the broader uh, service marketplace first? Yeah. So we first, uh, you know, we, we got quite a lot of growth pretty early, um, and we we had a reasonably good pay-as-you-go sort of marketplace business that we applied to Y Combinator with and. Yeah. Um, and got accepted to Y Combinator, had a fantastic um, time, learned learned a lot, um, and uh, raised around primarily from Y Combinator partners, um, and and that's been that was a super easy that was a super easy round, and then we used that money to sort of try to just continue to scale. Um, this sort of reasonably undifferentiated services marketplace um, and burn through most of the money. And this is sort of the second, I guess, forcing function that forces you to be, be narrow is when you're, you you just start to lose lots of money because you're executing on too many bets at, yeah. the same, at the same time. So, you know, we decided to really kind of cut cost, keep things lean, and then we spent the next two, three years you know, getting narrower and narrower um, and really trying to figure out which out of these uh, categories or which out of these customer groups can we really build something truly sticky sticky with. And then kind of late 2018, we made the decision, okay, let's um, shift to design only, subscription only, and let's go super premium and get the best talent in the world in you know all of these uh, emerging economies in latin america southern europe africa just let let's just get the, the very very best people and yeah. and then things just really started to click um it took a while to sort of execute this whole transition we went out um and tried to to do a fundraise kind of late 2018 um and um, spoke to like everyone, all the most prestigious VCs. Most people weren't particularly excited about our, you know, fifty percent year over year growth. We were at, I don't know, two million dollars in 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 revenue GMV on on the marketplace, which is you know maybe in you know last year's market or something probably would have been able to raise a lot of money super easily but but back then it wasn't super impressive and we really struggled to raise um, capital um, and I'd almost given up but met this great guy from Freestyle Capital called, called Josh Felser whom I just instead of talking about business just started talking about my life and just started you know telling the truth about everything and not trying to be you know, a poser, um, always telling this bullish story about growth, 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 and and we just hit it off, and they decided to to lead around, and um, 
yeah and then we didn't really raise anything until we did around last uh, last year again talk to me a little bit about i feel like there's like an incredibly valuable lesson there of like you there's a there's a sense of maturity I think that comes from a founder that like stops trying to convince every single person they meet that I have the biggest best company in the whole <laughs> world and like instead like just tells things like it is and focuses on like finding people who resonate with that and it sounds like that happened with Josh do you has that become something you've carried forward with with yourself as a CEO as you continue to build Superside Yeah for me absolutely I mean and I do think it's sort of um depends on the um, on the founder him or, or herself and um and many founders are able to to be very honestly very high conviction about uh, their businesses and so on but i'm kind of i guess deep down uh, i don't know like uh, in intellectual if you will and or i'm just like thinking about everything in this very kind of i'm not so sure type statements you know and it feels very hard for me to be um incredibly certain about anything and i'm always like questioning everything and to me it just always felt authentic to be very bullish in those vc meetings about like this is exactly how it's gonna go type and so and all our yc partners were telling me like or and me and and my co-founders you know you guys need to you know stop being so Norwegian, stopping so modest, you know, stopping uh, so unclear about your future guidance and so on and so forth. And uh, we tried to um, adopt that, but it kind of probably just went over the top the other way, right? So, and then you just come off as, as fake, whereas now I'm really just trying to, whenever people ask a question about our business, just say, I don't know, you know, I next Two, two quarters it looks tough um it's uncertain you know it's it's because it's the truth and when you just go around telling the truth to everyone you know you can sleep super well at night and if you can sleep super well at night you have a lot of energy for the next day and you probably yeah, will right. get a lot I of stuff done like, <laughs> it's, a, it's a it's a lot less stressful to be authentic and to not feel like you're um not lying right but you're, you're not like having to wake up every day and convince yourself um of certainty in things um, that you may not be certain of but that's kind of part of being a founder too is like hey if you're going to invest in me frederick right you're not investing in me always knowing the right answer right you're investing in me like always thinking about it yeah right? like i may not 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 know the right answer right now but you can rest assured that i'm going to think about it <laughs> you know i'm going to stay up late at night every day thinking about it until I figure it out and then I'm going to test that. And if it works, we move forward. And if it doesn't, I'm going to go back to, th you know, it's like you're investing in the process, not this like certainty that I know every single answer that you're exactly. Ask. Yeah, exactly. And I think kind of pre and post market pro product market is two completely different ways of, of being in those investor meetings, like post product market fit, you have actually found a company that, you know, it works, you know, people are knocking on your yeah. door. They want to do business with you and, yeah. And so our last run that we did in November was like a completely different. Then we just, then we can just tell, you know, with a reasonably high confidence because it's been established with like years of operational experience and so on. And then it's a completely different game. But for me, this like pre-product market fit thing. Yeah, I, I'm with you. You know, I think it's just much better to, 
be like very upfront with every investor you meet that these are the outstanding that there's a lot of outstanding questions and just ask for help and advice on how to how to solve them i love it um so i'm imagining there's going to be a lot of um scandinavians who listen to this particular episode and you mentioned something which scandinavians will be familiar with the rest of the world may not be but you know yontalovin like uh, this you know, you said the YC partners are like, stop being so Norwegian, right? And and that wasn't, yeah. I mean, that's a real thing, right? Like the culture in in, in in Scandinavia has very deeply this law of Yante. And <laughs> can, can, can you talk like, and you've obviously like, you've lived in Indonesia, you, you've built a company and have investors from the United States. Can you talk a little bit about how you personally like had to reconcile like your, Norwegian upbringing in this like very deep sense of like, I'm not better than anybody else. I don't brag, I, you know, humility. Obviously, Americans do business almost the opposite. Way. Like, I always joke with the, you know, there's a lot of Norwegians in Antler too. And I always joke with them that like anything an American tells you, you have to discount 30% because there's like accomplishment <laughs> inflation in the United States. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about like working in an international ecosystem? How did you reconcile um, sort of your Norwegianness with what you needed to do to be successful working with lots of different cultures? Yeah. Um, I mean, and maybe for the non-Scandinavian listeners, I'm not sure if anyone everyone knows what the law of Jant is, but it's like ten rules basically, and the first rule is like you're not to think that you are anything special. Um, and then it goes on, you know, you're not supposed to think that you're smarter than others and so on. And 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 this was to like reflect a small town in Denmark in, uh, I don't know, the 17th century or something, um, something like, like that. And I'm from a small Nor Norwegian town. Um, and uh, on the one hand, I kind of, like this law of Jante, um, uh, as as uh, you know, and and what you should you know attempt to to do as um, as a founder. And I'm not, you know, not obviously not able to do it all the time, and I, I constantly you know have bouts of arrogance and uh, <laughs> you, you, you know um self delusion and like like we like we all do but i think it's um important um goalpost to to not think that you're smarter than than others and, and realize that you know once you start on the startup journey you're really playing a game of dice and yes you need to work hard and stuff but there's a huge amount of luck um involved yeah. and i personally really hate it when i see kind of founders go out and you know write these like long news op-eds about like how taxation is like super high and keeping them down and you know like dude you've made like a billion dollars like maybe it's time to just <laughs> chill and try to think about <laughs> how to give back um and and so so that's on the one hand, and then on the other hand, like my hometown, all my friends from my my hometown have, I would say, exclusively been been cheering on on our our success. I I haven't really 
Um, I haven't really felt it that um, that bad. So, um, yeah. But what was the original uh, question like versus the U.S.? Maybe I think I also think that the U.S. Um, I actually really like doing business with um, with Americans. I I'm not sure if the law of Yante is there. Obviously, like in in Silicon Valley. You know, there's a lot of people that aren't necessarily, you know, that, that probably could have read up on the law of, law of, <laughs> law of Janta. But uh, there's also really a lot of people in the US that are just very pragmatic, very truth-seeking. Um, and it's really, really nice to do to do business with. So um, I've definitely become more pro-American, uh, I would say. Having <laughs> yeah. I agree. I, I mean, I think that there's a lot of diversity of opinions and culture in the U.S. And so I think there are a lot of people who are very humble, um, truth-seeking, um, pragmatic. Um, but but the, it's sort of like of their own accord. I wouldn't say that that's necessarily promoted in the institutions in the United States, right? So like... yeah. <laughs> No, definitely yeah. not. How was it like in Texas? Did it so you lived in what New York and then you moved to Texas, which should maybe be the polar opposites on on that scale. I think so. I, I you know I wouldn't say polar opposite. I would say definitely um, Texas is uh, much more. There's a, there's more humility in Texas. Um, th- there's less a sense of like mutual exclusivity. One of the things that to me is always like very palpable in New York City is this sense of like mutual exclusivity where it's like we all can't win, right? Like you win mm-hmm. by stepping on people's head and climbing up the ladder and like kicking and scratching your way up. And it's like you're you're confronted with that reality every single day you walk around New York City, right? Like New York City is a perfect example of of the social hierarchy in the United States. Um, and yes, there are examples of like mobility between social hierarchies, but like, you know, New York, you can go from like some of the worst (coughs) neighborhoods in the country. And then all of a sudden, like some of the wealthiest streets in Manhattan, and they're all there right next to each other. So it's like the entire socioeconomic strata of the United States displayed in one city. Like you're constantly confronted um, with that, and it creates this sense of like everybody can't be at the top, right? Like it, it, it forces you to like look at things as a pyramid. Whether and I don't necessarily know. I haven't really yet fully processed like the year I spent in New York. Like there's just so many like things to process through and like decide how you feel about. Um, but I do remember like constantly thinking that like New York is is an New York creates this environment where. Um, it really does feel like everybody can't win at the same time. And I don't necessarily think that that's true, but like very much uh, embedded in the culture in New York. Uh, to me, Texas is very different um, because there's just so much more room. There's like physical room, there's economic room, um, and there is more of a sense or a belief that like everybody can grow and rise together. Um, but... Uh, yeah, and then you have, you know, obviously, like, the cultures are very different, right? Like, <coughs> all the way back to 
pre-American Civil War. Uh, I mean, the culture that developed in the Northeast and sort of New England and the culture de that developed in the South um, were very different for a lot of different reasons. Um, I think one of the one of the more interesting like tidbits. So the South is known for like Southern hospitality, right? Um, but it can be very surface level. So a lot of times Southern hospitality is actually just passive aggressiveness. It's like people won't, people will be nice to your face, you know? So there's this like funny joke. Like if, if anyone ever says like, bless your heart, like, Oh, bless your heart in the South. It's actually like an insult, right? It, it, it means like, it, it, it can range on a spectrum of context, but like, it's generally like, I feel bad for you. Like I pity you, right. I pity the situation. Right? Hmm. Um, whereas I think like distinctly New York is not passive aggressive. Like New York is the exact opposite. It's like very in your face. People are going to say exactly how they feel all the time. Um, and there's like an interesting anthropological explanation to that, which is like pre civil war. Um, nobody in new England had, guns, weapons, swords, like they were big, dense cities even before the Civil War. And so like people didn't carry around weapons um, or at least not regularly. And so it was a safe environment to just tell somebody like, hey, fuck you to your face. It was like very efficient. Right. And so I think like as density increases in an urban environment, um, communication efficiency has to increase. Like New York is too dense to be passive aggressive. It would take too much mental energy to like Hmm. Always be passive aggressive with people. Whereas in the South, like pre-Civil War, everybody had guns, right? So if you walked down the street and bumped into somebody and say like, hey, fuck you, right? That was like, a really good chance you'd like end up in a duel and like yeah. die for like a really <laughs> stupid reason. <laughs> and so you had this culture of like passive aggressiveness develop, whereas like you never really know who someone is or whether they're carrying a weapon, et cetera. And so you would always kind of to their face, like be nice or at least like be passive aggressive. Wow, um, that's a really interesting um, theory. And and so you lived in Vietnam immediately prior to the US, right? So how would this theory yeah. apply? And like in Ho Chi Minh, right? Which is like a mega city. And did they have guns? Or like how, how is the passive, <laughs> passive aggressiveness uh, in Ho well, Chi Minh? Actually, right before New York, I lived in Singapore. Um, which is uh, very aggressive. But I lived in, yeah, but I lived in, yeah, which like not aggressive at all singapore is like a very fascinating culture and saigon um yeah i mean people don't have guns or it's just a communist country so like you people don't generally have weapons um i i would say uh rather confrontation not confrontational but like people will speak their mind right like people have no qualms with like getting in an argument in the street if they need to and i think that's more like an efficiency of communication where it's like, it's just a super dense city. Like people don't have time to not just like say exactly what they feel and move on and, and then get over it. Um, like the only thing that ever really confuses me that I haven't been able to, um, fit into my theory on like density versus speed of communication or fins, right? <laughs> like the, f like <laughs> Finland doesn't fit into that model. It's like, they're the most direct, culture in the entire world but like finland isn't particularly dense right like even helsinki their biggest city like I, it's probably not even top 10 in terms of density so there has to be like some other explanation as to yeah. why fins are so direct but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no they always show up just breaking all those theories they don't fit into any kind of theory so you know finland always no. just has to be an asterisk it must there. just be it's just like um, so cold like nobody has time to deal yeah. with like it's just too cold to deal with yeah. it um 
But yeah, and obviously both you and I have worked internationally and, sp- you know, you spent a lot of time in Indonesia and now with Superside, I mean, I'm dealing with clients and vendors all over the world. I mean, I think it's fascinating to, it's one thing to like go visit a country and like see what people eat and, you know, what the city looks like. I think it's like really, really useful to work with other cultures because that's where you get to see how people actually act and you get to see that there's like, to me, it's always this like really revealing sense of um, moral relativity of like what's wrong and acceptable in your culture is a totally different thing in a different culture and this sort of like sense of, you know, I spent a lot of time working in India too and that was where it like really hit me in the face that like, um, like what's considered proper and correct within the office space is much different than if you were with Americans or, you know, I remember when I was working in India, we had a tech team in Germany and I would get on conference calls and on one side of the conference call are Germans and on the other side of the conference call are Indians in Delhi. And it was like, <laughs> I remember I had to create two separate invoice invites to that meeting because the Germans would show up five minutes before and the Indian team would show up 30 minutes late. And it was like, <laughs> neither of those are wrong, right? But that's just like, okay, Germany, it makes sense, right? And in India, it's like you have, you know, what I came to appreciate is like this sense of flexible time was like, well, there's so many other variables in terms of like getting to the office on time. You know, I remember I was in uh, Gorgon. And multiple times, like, nobody came to the office because Gorgon flooded. It, like, rained the previous day, and people were like, hey, there's, like, six feet of standing water outside my house. I can't come to the office. Or, you know, one car crash could shut down traffic for a day or whatever. Um, Whereas in Germany, like, it would have to be an incredibly extraneous circumstance for you not to be able to get to work every day the same way. Mm. So just getting a sense of, like, there are explanations behind these cultural differences that make a lot of sense when you actually work. in that culture but absolutely and just to kind of uh, play on that i mean i think for me it's like i definitely agree that there's like lots of things that are very different in in different cultures but and i've worked uh, in a few different uh, countries and what's always sort of stood out to me is is this thing that deepest deep down like we're all just really really similar um And it's like the most, I mean, we're all just really, yeah, really the same in, in the most fundamental, fundamental things. And, um, and it's been fascinating to me to see now in our company where we have people from every continent, every major country, um, and been able to build our own culture, which is a very strong company culture culture completely disjoint from whichever kind of local country culture that person is is part of, you know, how we're suddenly able to establish completely new ways of of working together. And so take the simple example of being on time, you know, everyone that is from India in Superside shows up on time, always, because it's like the way we do it here. Uh, Yeah, yeah. And and it's just really cool to see um, how yeah how how everyone despite their like huge differences from the get go is able to work so uh, seamlessly together on the internet. Like people ask how how are you doing this remote thing? It must be so chaotic. And it's like it's just it's much less chaotic than I had anticipated, <laughs> which yeah. is which I just find really interesting. That's great. 
Um, was there any, just a, a, a last point, um, on the culture, like, did you, how, how did you go about building that culture inside of Superset? Was it very intentional? Um, did it sort of happen organically? Was it a combination of both? Like, how did, how did you arrive at a place where, I mean, it seems like, especially the way that you talk about it, like there is a very firm culture within Superset that you promote to everyone that works on the platform. Like, how did that, how did that come to be? Yeah, uh, I would say it's been quite intentional, actually, and something that um, we have thought a lot about, both in sort of every situation that comes up, which is like a tough decision, it comes back to to values, right? And so you think about it implicitly all the time, but also explicitly when we've been sort of having this abstract philosophical debates about what should be the values, um, of the company and, and and how do you want people to be like so I'd say we spent a um, pretty significant amount of of time very early on and and the values have been fairly constant it also is something that we revisit every year or so and something that we try to get the entire company engaged with and well, quite frankly I just grow more and more convinced about the power of well thought out uh, and properly differentiated um values um and w- yeah I, I i'm a huge believer i kind of remember thinking it was like a little bit bs thing that you just had to do because it was like best practice um yeah, something to write up on the wall in the office and move on yeah exactly but like if you can write down stuff that people will actually say and use in situations to be like, hey, 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 no, you can't, you know, do it like uh, this. This is in breach of company values. We need to, we need to do it like like that. It suddenly starts to become really, really uh, powerful. So big believer in that. I love it. Well, Frederick, we'll wrap it up there. I have two last questions for you um, that I ask everybody. So number one is, are there any other uh, founders, CEOs that you follow that you think would be great on this show or that you think are just like great thought leaders um, that founders should hear from? Good, um, good question. Uh, who have we had so far? Oh, we've had uh, Mark from Strava, Andrew, Airtable. Uh, we had Rahul from Superhuman. We had Harpal Magical, Avi from Travel Perk. Um, I mean, to be completely honest with you, I've been digging and trying really hard. I really want to get some amazing uh, female founders, female CEOs on here. Uh, you know, I think that's a perspective that we haven't really given justice to yet. So, um, any female founders that you know would be fantastic i mean i want to i want to tell that story i, I want to bring on great female operators yeah there should be some good ones in in asia i mean um i guess china remains the number one country for female billionaires uh, southeast asia is also doing pretty well yeah. scandinavia surprisingly does terrible and not a single <laughs> uh, big company yeah. female founder um we have but, some uh, here. I've been working on like uh, 
Whitney Wolf Heard, the founder of Bumble, she's here in Austin. Um, it's just been really difficult to reach her. So if anyone listening to this knows Whitney Wolf Heard, please send her this episode <laughs> and tell her that I want her to come on and talk about building Bumble. Awesome. Okay, so think about that. You can follow up. And then last question is books. Um, so you as a founder, as a CEO, are there any books that you would recommend to people that you felt like were particularly influential for you as a leader? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm a big believer in um, reading up on your own cultural uh, heritage. So for me, that means Norwegian fiction. I believe a lot of um, wisdom and, um, um, and and insight is carried through to through you know your own culture and knowing your own culture uh, to a great uh, detail or to a great greater depth um is a huge advantage i think in the global marketplace it gives yeah. you some deep insights that nobody else has and so for me it's um it's uh you know i really like to read this norwegian some of these norwegian authors i think everyone should read uh, knut um hansen um his uh, most famous book is uh, hunger which i think is uh it's about a struggling artist in Oslo that uh, walks around uh, really hungry and really struggling. And I think it's a great metaphor for the startup uh, journey. And it was also the Christmas present for uh, the super Superside leadership team uh, in 2018 when we were pretty hungry. Um, and uh, um, yeah, and obviously Klausko is a phenomenal um, author that I highly recommend. And, uh, and obviously the... the Slightly less uh, famous dog, uh, Solstad, if uh, anyone uh, is uh, really interested in, um, in in going down the Norwegian uh, Norwegian journey. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, well, Frederick, I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks so much for coming on and sharing everything with us. And best of luck. Uh, I know Superside is just getting started. So wish you guys the best of luck as things continue to progress and you guys continue to grow. Thank you very much. Great to uh, be here and uh, good luck with the early days uh, podcast. Hey everybody, it's Tyler again. Thanks so much for listening. If you're interested in building a venture-backed company like the one you just heard about, we would love to help. To learn more about our founder studios that we run around the world, please find more information at antler.co. Thank you.